1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, this is the second week that we have been looking at this chapter in its entirety, but our focus will primarily be on the uh, latter portion of the chapter. And so let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 9. First Corinthians 5, verse 9. The apostle says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are just grateful to gather in your presence in your holy temple, the church of the living God. And we're all gathered around this wonderful, breathtakingly true and glorious gift that you've given us, your written word, the scriptures. Thank you for revealing yourself in the pages of the Bible not leaving us to grope or guess for the truth, but showing us what, exactly what you want us to know about you, about your church, about the world, about ourselves, and about what you expect from us and the way that you desire us to live as members of your family, sons and daughters of the Most High King. And so, Father, as we examine this text, I pray that you would give us submissive hearts, help us to be ready, willing, even eager to walk in obedience to you. Father, before we do that, we pause to ask for your blessing on the ministry of our uh, partners across the world. We think especially right now of Pastor Guy as he, uh, in a, a few hours, will get up and uh, go to some very important meetings as he ministers on the island of Tonga. I pray that you would give him favor with those that he is going to be interacting with and that you would open doors for fruitful ministry both now and on future trips. Father, protect him, keep him healthy and safe, and I pray that you would renew his joy in you today. Father, we think of the W family as they are presenting their ministry yet again in a uh, church here in, in Texas. We ask that you would refresh them uh, we rejoice with them for, for your provision and the news that they shared with us last week, that they have reached full funding, and so we pray that you would uh, continue to provide and that you would pave the way. 
And Father, when we consider the ministry that they are hoping to engage in, in, in our flesh, in our humanity, we're uh, just struck with a sense of, of being overwhelmed. From a human standpoint, it's impossible, uh, but nothing is impossible with you. And so, Father, we eagerly long to hear of your work succeeding in the area that you are sending them to go to. And so we pray for that today. Uh, Lord, we also lift up again Jason and Robin as they are here stateside for a few months. I pray that you would refresh them and uh, that the uh, small little group of, of baby Christians would, would thrive uh, there in Thailand as they're uh, here in the United States and that you would uh, just continue to use them in the ways that you are uh, as we partner with them together. But Father, come with, uh, open up your word to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the way home from church last week, uh, one of my kids reminded me of an instance in church history that shows that when it comes to the topic of church discipline, the church of God tends to vacillate between two extremes. Uh, if the modern evangelical church, on the one hand, tends to neglect this duty, our predecessors living in colonial New England struggled, perhaps, with the opposite problem. In spite of their best efforts, there were abuses, and some of those were serious, others quite comical. Consider, for example, the office of tithingman, humorously described in 1891 in the book The Sabbath in Puritan New England by Alice Morse Earle. The tithingman fits all the stereotypes of Puritan New England you can possibly think of. His role was straightforward and simple. Enforce good behavior during public worship. Just like today, there were always people present in worship, tempted to squirm or sleep or pass notes or just generally be a distraction so the pastor would select a vigilant and sober-minded congregant to serve as tithing men to make sure nobody was sleeping or cutting up during the sermon. This is real, folks. So the tithingman would perch in the gallery or a windowsill, holding a long, sturdy staff. Most of these had a knob or even a sharp spike on one end, yes, and a feather or a furry foxtail on the other. If one of the women in the church were nodding off, then... Uh, the tithingman, in a gentlemanly way, would reach out with the feather or the foxtail and sort of do the feather duster on her face so that she could wake up and hear the rest of the sermon. The young boys and the men were not so lucky. Misbehaving boys would be wrapped on the head, and snoring men got the spike in their arm or shoulder. One hilarious incident was recorded in 1616 by a journalist in a small settlement north of Boston. I can't improve upon his wording, so I'll just let him tell the story. He says, Alan Bridges hath been chose to wake ye sleepers in meeting, and being much proud of his place, must needs have a foxtail fixed to ye end of a long staff, wherewith he may brush ye faces of them that will have naps in time of discourse, likewise a sharp thorn whereby he may prick, such as be most sound." On ye last Lord's Day, as he strutted about ye meeting house, he did spy Mr. Tomlins, sleeping with much comfort, 
his head kept steady by being in ye corner, and his hand grasping ye rail. And so spying, Alan did quickly thrust his staff behind Dame Ballard and give him a grievous prick upon ye hand, whereupon Mr. Tomlins did spring up much above ye floor and with terrible force strike his hand against ye wall and also to ye great wonder of all profanely exclaim in a loud voice, curse ye woodchuck. (laughs) He dreaming so it seemed that a woodchuck had seized and bit his hand. But on coming to know where he was and ye great scandal he had committed, he seemed much abashed but did not speak. And I think he will not soon again go to sleep in meeting. For the average Christian living today, it seems to me that this is sort of where our mind goes. When we think about church discipline, a quaint, pharisaical, shockingly meddlesome practice designed to puff up the self-righteous, and make regular people miserable. None of us want to be the tithing men strutting around the church, sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. And so in rejecting the caricature, we perhaps set aside the clear teachings of Scripture altogether. Last week, we began to study this chapter in which Paul rebukes the church in Corinth for the way they had proudly welcomed the kind of unrighteousness that even their unbelieving neighbors would disapprove of. And we observe that Paul's message is very simple. It's a very simple sentence that you can remember. You must remove unrepentant church members. We took our time to understand that it is the congregation's ultimate responsibility to do this. It's not the elder's job primarily. It's the congregation's job primarily. And that it is not optional. If you had to miss last week, let me just say, this is really only going to make sense if you listen to that message. So I would encourage you to go back and do that on your own time. You can find it on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, But today, I'd like to kind of move from the obligation to practice church discipline to the actual practice of the same. Uh, Let's continue to work our way through our simple sentence. Notice that this passage makes clear, you must remove unrepentant church members. What I mean to emphasize is that there is a specific process. There are specific actions laid out in Scripture describing what we ought to do in cases of church discipline. Uh, I remember a time as a young kid hanging out with one of my cousins and uh, overhearing a conversation between him and his mother, my Aunt, and uh, in typical fashion, he had gotten in in trouble at school for some reason, nothing big. And in typical parental fashion, I heard my aunt warn him, if you keep doing that, if you don't learn how to behave, you're going to get kicked out of school. And just as serious as he could be, he looked back, face filled with panic, and asked, will they kick me like this? It's really easy to misunderstand the process of church discipline, isn't it? To make it about getting even rather than gaining your brother. So when I say remove, I do not mean, I hope you know this, that you physically kick them out the door or that you frog march them to their car or anything like that. Let's just take a moment to clarify. First of all, uh, let's address the difference between this passage and a similar passage in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, This ends up being a major source of confusion, so I'd like to read what Jesus said in its entirety 
this is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Listen along as I read. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice the difference between what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 and what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5. And what Jesus tells his disciples, uh, there is a multi-step process of escalation. Uh, it begins with a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It escalates to more than one person. And if the brother still doesn't repent, you tell the entire church and you give the entire church the opportunity to reach out to that brother and admonish him. Finally, after all those other steps have been taken, if the problem persists, only then does Jesus encourages, encourage us to remove someone from the congregation. But Paul, if you notice, he seems to sort of skip right over all those other steps. He, he jumps right to the last step. He says, go ahead and remove this person. Why is that? Why is Paul encouraging us to just remove this one person? Is there a fundamental disagreement between Jesus and Paul? No, I don't think there is. There's no disagreement. There are just different circumstances between the hypothetical example that Jesus gives and the real example that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the main differences is that this man's sin is not a private affair. It's been done in plain view of the entire community. Everybody already knows. So this is very different. In the hypothetical case mentioned in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus encourages us to try to keep these matters as private as possible, to be kind toward the sinning brother. That's the purpose for the slow escalation, so that it's not more pressure on him than is necessary to reach the goal. But in the case at Corinth, the cat's already out of the bag, so those intermediate steps don't make sense. It's a public instance of clear disobedience. What's more, we can also presume that this matter has already been discussed by the church as a whole. If you pay attention to the details of what Paul says, he tells them, you, in verse 2, are arrogant about your choice to welcome this man. In other words, the church's disposition is already well known. All avenues of restoration have been exhausted, and here we are at the very last step, and there is nothing more that can be done. This is a last resort. And so Paul tells them, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Is this some sort of secret ritual? Is it more like shunning in which we pretend like he doesn't exist, like he is dead? It's important that we get this right because while we like to think that we in modern times are more compassionate than people living in Puritan New England, right? The truth of the matter is that this type of religious ex excommunication happens all the time in our culture. Some of you have uh, experienced this. We see people encouraging one another on social media all the time. Cut all the toxic people out of your life, right? Some of you have been excommunicated from the life of a loved one. You know what it's like. They act like they never knew you, like you're dead. There's no grace. There's no path of restoration. You're just dead to them. Is that what Paul means when he says, deliver them to Satan 
No, I don't think it is. According to the rest of the New Testament, uh, Satan holds the entire world in his grip of illegitimate authority. And Paul says that for Christians, before we were born again, we were actually following the devil. Uh, We were part of the realm of Satan, and God brought us out of that realm and brought us in to his kingdom. This is what the New Testament clearly teaches. So let me just pause for an aside. I, I recognize there are people listening to me today who are not Christians. And I'm sure it must feel a little off-putting for me to speak of those who don't believe in Christ as subjects of Satan. Here you are, you're our guests, and I'm telling you that you're a follower of the devil. That's not really that polite, is it? But I'm willing to say something like that because, first of all, the New Testament teaches it, and second of all, because the stakes are so high. Uh, Because what I'm saying is that Satan... And his spiritual armies, in cooperation with the world of men, are so successful at twisting the minds and the consciences and the affections of men that we actually embrace evil in our lives while telling ourselves that we're embracing something good. You ever caught yourself doing that? This is what Satan does. And as offensive as it may be, I want to clearly state that you might be so deceived in your own values... And in your own sense of what's right, that you don't even realize that you're living in rebellion against the God who made you. So yes, friend, if you are outside of Christ, you are, in this sense, a part of the illegitimate authority of the accuser. Because when he stands in opposition to you, and he points his bony finger and he says, this one is a sinner, then no one can stand there and and argue with that. It's true. No, what we need is for someone to stand as our advocate and say, Satan, you're wrong. Your accusations don't stick. This person is righteous because he is clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and to receive Christ is to say, I need an advocate and I believe that if I am in Christ, if I am clothed with his righteousness, then I can stand against the accusations of the enemy and I will stand there righteous not guilty in the last day because those sentences, that condemnation is already carried out at the cross. There's no other way to be justified. There's no other way to be delivered from the realm of Satan. You must have Christ. This is essentially what Paul means when he says deliver this man to Satan. It means deliver him back to this place where where the rest of the world already is. This is what he needs to know. Deliver this man to Satan publicly and officially acknowledge that this person is part of Satan's kingdom, not God's kingdom. Make a public declaration that he's not part of the family of God, but of the kingdom of the devil. Simply put, you are to treat this man as though he were not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is essentially what his life is showing. And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried to get him to repent. You've showed him what scripture teaches. You've said, you know what's right. Please walk in repentance. Please pursue Christ. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go my own way. And so what you're doing is you're saying, okay, you don't want Christ. You've made it really clear. That's why in verse 11 he tells us we aren't to eat with this person. What does that mean? I believe he's referring specifically to communion, the Lord's Supper. We're to admonish this person that he is not welcome at the Lord's table 
unless he repents and receives Christ. So folks, think about it this way. I know this is hard to hear, but what happens when the church baptizes a professing believer, when the church welcomes a new member into our body? That is a, what is that? That's a public declaration to the entire world, anybody who listen. It's a public declaration that we're saying to the world, if you want to see what a follower of Christ looks like, look at this person. She's not perfect. She's not, got, she's not free of problems, but she's following Christ. And so if you want to see what somebody looks like who's following Christ, look at this person. That, this is a person who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Her life is going to increasingly demonstrate the evidence of the presence of God. So when we deliver somebody to Satan, what are we doing? We're essentially saying the opposite. We're saying we can't see evidence of genuine saving faith in this person's life because a real Christian, someone who's, who, who trusts Christ from the heart, would repent from these types of deeds. And this person is stubbornly, continually refusing to repent. So folks... It's not shunning. It's not treating that person as though they were dead. It's not casting them out of our lives forever. Is that how you would treat another non-Christian? No, you would be kind to them. You would be compassionate toward that person. You want them to receive Christ. And that becomes our disposition toward a professing believer whose life clearly contradicts the profession that they're making with their mouth. We don't pretend we can see in the secret places of the heart. We don't imagine that our judgments are final, but we do exercise the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to his church. You must remove unrepentant church members. Moving on, you must remove unrepentant church members. This is important, and once again, an area in which the church of God tends to be confused. Who should be removed? Well, this should only happen in the event that the sinner refuses to repent. Folks, repentance is the goal of the whole process. That's the point. So if somebody repents, you don't need to complete the process. You just welcome them back. You restore them. You rejoice with them. Notice the man's situation in our passage back in the beginning of the passage. He has his father's wife. Uh, the word translated has is a present active infinitive verb. The verbal tense is critically important in the Greek because it underscores the fact that this is a continual state. This is something that's going on right now. Here's a man who knows he's living in an immoral lifestyle and he is still doing it. It's going on. He's not repented. In another discipline situation mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul offers counsel to the church in the case of a man who had been removed but had subsequently repented. And he says to the church, he says the, the punishment or the discipline that you've meted out to this man is already enough. Welcome him back in. He's repented. This is only for unrepentant sinners. The point of discipline in God's church is restoration, not retribution. Let me also say that church discipline uh, is for members in cases where the sin is outward and visible and where it is significant. Uh, we aren't going to discipline anyone for having uh, too many cups of coffee, coffee out in the lobby and they didn't wait for somebody else to have their first cup or something like that. No, that, that might be uh, uh, something they shouldn't have done, uh, but that's so small, okay? We're, we're only talking about significant things. We're only talking about things that you can see on the outside. We don't uh, discipline people for having lustful thoughts or being proud 
Why? Well, because you can't see those lustful thoughts. You can't see what's going on in somebody's heart. You can see what someone does in their life. Don't worry. The day is going to come when God will deal with every sin, and the secrets of man's heart is going to be exposed. That day is coming. We learn that in chapters 3 and 4. But the congregation exercises its authority to discipline only in cases where those sins are outward, where they are significant, and where they are unrepentant, because repentance is the goal. Now, this is simple enough, but before we move on to the last phrase in our simple sentence, let me just say that repentance, you know this, right? It's more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is more than that. It's more than crocodile tears or empty promises of reformation. Paul talks about the distinction between godly sorrow or true repentance and worldly sorrow or false repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a whole sermon in and of itself that I won't preach today. But maybe I can just illustrate. Imagine you're married and your spouse, without telling you, maxes out two or three credit cards while buying things you don't need, you know, new furniture, expensive electronics, uh, fancy clothes, etc. So now you have $20,000 of consumer debt. You didn't ask for it. You didn't even know you were building that debt. Your budget can barely sustain the minimum payment, and you're on the hook for 20% interest. So you're looking at thousands of dollars down the drain, years of painful repayment, and you're just finding out about it today. And so you confront him or her, as the case may be. Hey, what you did was wrong. Calmly, right? <laughs> Kindly. And they say, I'm sorry. Let me ask you a question. Is that enough for you? <laughs> Is that relationship restored at that point? I'm sorry. Okay, well, where are we going to go for dinner? <laughs> no. You might have a forgiving attitude, but that relationship is not restored with, I'm sorry. That's not enough for true repentance. True repentance is, you're right. What I did was wrong. I, I went behind your back. I broke your trust. I want you to forgive me, but I also understand it's going to take time to rebuild that trust. I know that. I know it's going to be painful. I know it's going to take time. Here are my other credit cards. I, I know I can't be trusted anymore. I understand. Let's look at the budget. I know you're on the hook for this debt just as much as me, but maybe there's some areas where I can personally cut back. Let me look at my stuff. Is there something I can sell? You see, repentance is different from just saying, I'm sorry. That's just talk. Talk is cheap. Repentance is different. Repentance takes action. Repentance invites accountability. Repentance involves humility. It, it receives responsibility. So in the case in Corinth, brother. You're wrong to have your father's wife. Sorry. Okay, so you're going to cut this relationship off and you're going to move out of her home, right? I said I was sorry. No. That, that's not repentance. Repentance doesn't try to bargain. Well, if I say I'm sorry, uh, will you let this thing blow over? No. Repentance doesn't make excuses. Well, if my wife loved and respected me, I wouldn't have cheated on her. No, that's not what someone says when they're repentant. They don't make excuses. They take responsibility for their actions. They're willing to walk through those hard steps to make it right. A repentant person is broken before the Lord. 
Folks, we all should be broken before the Lord. And that's the goal of discipline. It's to invite a fallen brother to a place of humility before God and God's people so that he or she might be fully restored. So that the scars of sin might become trophies of the grace of God. Did you know that that's possible? For those scars to actually become occasions to testify to the goodness and grace of God. Not something that we're ashamed of anymore. Not, we don't brag about them, but there's some, there are things that we can say, hey, God saved me. God walked me through this, and I'm restored to the people of God. That's what we're after. You must remove unrepentant church members. But notice as well, you must remove unrepentant church members. Why that awkward, official-sounding phrase, church members? Sounds very institutional. Why this phrase? Uh, because we are a church, and the New Testament describes the individuals in the church as members. Did you know that? It's actually a metaphor. It's kind of like hand or eye or knee or foot. Uh, these are members of the body, and each individual person is a member of the body of Christ. In other words, what we're doing is we're answering a, a critical question here. We've already asked, what does this process look like practically? We've asked, to whom does this process apply? But now we need to ask, what conditions are necessary in order for obedience to be possible? Paul describes these conditions in verses 9 through 13. Uh, and my suspicion is this is where many churches go wrong. They do not obey the teaching of this passage because they're unwilling to embrace the conditions necessary for obedience. Well, what are those conditions? There are two. First of all, there must be a clear, excuse me, there must be a clear, explicit understanding of who is in and who is out. There must be a clear, explicit understanding of who is in and who is out? Who is a part of the church and who is not a part of the church? That's necessary in order for us to obey the spirit of this passage. Paul says, I'm not asking you to judge outsiders. I'm not asking you to withdraw completely from the world. That's not the issue. God, exercises, uh, God asks us to exercise this authority in the church, among those who are members of the church. Well, who are the people in the church? Is that the people who regularly attend on Sunday morning? No. There are a lot of people who regularly attend who are not members of the church. Even in Corinth, there were people there who were uh, coming to their Sunday morning gathering. Uh, they, Paul talks about them in 1 Corinthians 14. We'll get to that in a few months. But no, it's not just anybody who attends. Certainly in our church today, there are regular attenders who are not members of the church. You don't even need to be a follower of Christ to attend the gathering of the church of God, okay? So no, it's not the people who regularly attend. Who's in? Who are the members of the church? Is it everybody who has made a profession of faith and been baptized in the entire world? Is Paul talking about the universal church that will one day for the first time gather before the throne of grace in the new creation? No. We've already established that he's talking to one local church. He's talking to the church at Corinth about a specific situation. This is a group of people who know the man in question. They have a specific accountability to each other. They have a specific group of leaders who teach them the word of God. They have a specific time when they all gather together in the same place. Did you catch that in verse 4? When you come together. The assumption is you will come together in the same place. In other words, they don't have any confusion about who is in 
and who is out because the people who are part of their church are known to them by name. You brought up a name to them and said, is this person a part of the church? They would be able to tell you right, right away, that, no, that person is not a part of the church. Or yes, that person is a part of the church. Now, I'll just say that was a little easier to do in the early church than it is for us today in the United States. Uh, the churches in the first century were generally quite small. Uh, not only that, but it was extremely costly to make a profession of faith and be baptized. You didn't have a lot of hangers-on uh, attracted to Christianity because of the social or economic benefits or because of tradition or anything like that. And that's different today in the United States, isn't it? Uh, there are still all kinds of incentives for someone to say, I'm a Christian, when they have no relationship with Christ whatsoever. And so, folks, this is why in past generations, Baptist churches kept a very careful record of who was a member of that church. This is why in past generations, Baptist churches like ours would request a letter of transfer from someone's previous congregation if they were moving their membership from one church to another. That's why. This is why in past generations, Baptist churches would often remind one another aloud, if we remove from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church. It's not because they were being legalistic. It's not because they like to feel official or important. It's, it's because they recognized that unless they did something intentional, unless they were fastidious in their attention to matters of church membership, when the time came to exercise the authority of Christ in calling back a wayward sinner, they would have no basis at all upon which to act. In other words, they were just trying to be faithful. But today... Is it possible that we presume to have moved past these concerns? I can tell you that, generally speaking, we don't do a lot of things the way that our predecessors did them. But is that because we've found a better way? If there is a better way, I haven't found it. Either way, though, a necessary condition of obedience in this matter is a clear, unmistakable sense of who is in and who is out. But there's a second condition of obedience implied in Paul's rhetorical question at the end of verse 12. He asks, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? Wait a second. I thought Jesus said we're not supposed to judge. J judge not, right? No, don't take Jesus' words out of context. The New Testament is clear, including in the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of those texts from which we cherry-pick phrases and make them mean what we want them to mean, that there is a sense in which we are not to judge people, and there is a sense in which we are to judge people. So here's the second condition, simply stated. You are to judge those inside the church. There must be, here's the condition, there must be clear accountability between the individual member and the congregation as a whole. There must be clear accountability between the individual member and the congregation as a whole. So often we treat our membership as part of a, a local church as if it were a library card. Have you noticed this? You know, a library card, you keep it in your wallet, maybe. You ignore it for months at a time, and you pull it out if you need it. Is that what church membership is supposed to be? 
No, it better be much more than that if we are going to meet the conditions necessary for obedience in this passage. There has to be a clear relationship of accountability between the individual Christian and the congregation as a whole. Now, we don't like this, do we? Let's be honest. I suspect this is the main reason why we don't like discipline in the church in the first place. We don't want to remove someone who is caught in unrepentant sin because that would imply that that person is accountable for the way he lives his life to the church body as a whole. But if that person is accountable, then that would mean I am accountable. If that person is called upon to live obediently, folks, listen, that means I might be called upon to live obediently. I might be challenged to forsake a secret sin. I might be confronted about the way I talk to my wife. I might be admonished not to forsake the assembly. I, that means I am accountable, and I don't like that. I want to come and go as I please. I want to be able to opt in and opt out on a whim, and so let's just ignore this passage altogether. Let me state the obvious. Accountability that is only welcome when you want it and you feel like you're doing what's right, but unwelcome when you don't want it and you want to nurse a secret sin is not real accountability. You know that, right? Accountability when nobody knows you personally, that's not real accountability. Accountability when nobody sees you but a couple times a year or less isn't real accountability. If we're going to obey Christ in these matters, then we have to live in such a way that we know who is a member of this local church and we have to have a shared understanding of mutual accountability between the individual member, me, and the congregation as a whole, us. This is why I say you must remove unrepentant church members. Now, I know that in this series on 1 Corinthians, text after text, it's led us to deal with matters of the way that the church as a whole operates. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's not relevant to me because I'm not a church leader. I'm not one of the elders. But folks, that is what, that's part of what challenges us in a passage like this. Uh, it's not just the elders who are responsible for the culture and the structure of the church. According to the apostle, it's on all of us, and partially, Christian, it's on you as an individual. You, the congregation as a whole, must, it's an obligation, not an option, remove. There's a scriptural process we're to follow. Unrepentant. The whole point is to restore a wayward brother or sister. Church members. We need real accountability as real church members in order for this to be able to take place. So as we go into a time of response... Let me just briefly mention a handful of ways that you might be led by the Holy Spirit to respond to this text. And keep in mind, this is a two-part message. Part one was last week. Part two is today. So if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back to that prior week's message and give it a listen. But here's first possible response. Is it possible that in discussing the necessity of holiness in God's church, the Holy Spirit put his finger on something in your life. You don't like the idea of discipline in the church because if you're honest, you've got a life-dominating habit that doesn't please God, and until now, you've been holding it close. 
And friend, I, I just want to say to you, it's time. Now's the time. Today's the day to let it go. Today's the day to bring that to God, to bring that to God's people and say, I need help with this. I need my brothers and sisters to pray with me about this. Not everybody, not, not everybody has to know, but a few of God's people. Let's stop pushing back against the Holy Spirit. Let's repent for real. Second possible response. Maybe you see the wisdom of a text like this, and it's like a light bulb has switched on in your heart, and you realize, I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm not accountable to God's people because I'm not actually a member of an actual local church where people know me. If that's you, listen, I, it's okay for that to be a long process, for you to do your due diligence to figure out where God wants your family to be. You need to make sure you know what you're getting into, but I'd love to start that conversation with you about church membership. Third possible response. Folks, listen. Is there somebody in your orbit that's caught in sin and you've avoided it? You've acted like you didn't see because you didn't want to be judgmental or you didn't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. But folks, Christ never said, take the log out of your own eye and then walk away. What did he say? He said, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother. Right? Go back and check it for yourself. That's what he said. You're in, in his or her life for a reason, and maybe the Holy Spirit's making it clear you've got to challenge them in love, not because you're better than they are, but because you care about them. Fourth possible response. Maybe you're here this morning, and the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart's affection because you know that deep down inside you know you're far from God, and you have no standing before him with which to be justified, and you know you need a Savior. You need to be rescued from your sin. Why wait? Why resist? Just come to us. Come to any one of us in this church and let us open up the Word of God and show you how you can know for sure that you are justified, that you'll be declared not guilty on the last day at the judgment. Let us show you how you can know that you are right with God. And ultimately, friends, Believers, in spite of our stumbling, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve his grace, God invites us to have fellowship with him. I know many of us from the last two Sundays, this chapter, it's so uh, sober that we feel a little beat up. We feel a little disciplined ourselves, right, by our God. And yet he wants us to gather around his table. He doesn't say, stay out of my house. You're not going to eat with me ever again. He says, no, Christ the Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. So let's enjoy the feast together with unleavened bread. Let's be, let's be a pure loaf together and have fellowship with him. And I'm eager to celebrate the Passover feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth today because Christ has been sacrificed for us, his blood shed, his body broken, so that we might share life with God around this table as his sons and his daughters.
And I want to do that with a clear conscience as a church, not because I'm perfect and I don't have any sin in my life, but because everything the Holy Spirit's put his finger on, I've opened up to him and I've said, I want to do what you say to do, God. I want to obey what you've said to do in your word. So let's just do that together. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up at this time. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I would just invite you to prepare your hearts with me for that very moment when we can share in this symbolic fellowship with the Lord as we sing together. So would you stand with me? Let's pray.